What an appropriate song for us to relate to this passage and to get our hearts ready to worship the King, to behold Jesus Christ. Matthew 12, verses 15 to 21. Let me start in verse 14 to set some context. It says this, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against Him, that is Jesus, how to destroy Him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed Him, and He healed them all, and ordered them not to make Him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, My servant whom I have chosen, My beloved with whom My soul is well pleased. I will put My Spirit upon Him, and He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles." He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the the Gentiles will hope. So here we have a long quote from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet who wrote during the time of the divided kingdom in Israel in the year around 700 B.C. And Isaiah paints a picture for the people of Israel, both of judgment and salvation. First judgment. There's imminent judgment coming. The empire Babylon has risen and is coming in to take Israel captive into exile. This is... God's judgment towards the people of Israel for breaking their covenant with Him. But there's also future judgment talked about in Isaiah. That is future judgment for all of Israel's enemies, including Babylon, Tyre, and Egypt. Vengeance is Yahweh's, and He will reign over all empires, all world empires. So you have a message of judgment, but you also have a message of salvation from Isaiah. Isaiah gives believing Israel hope and a future salvation. He reassures them of God's covenant promises. Although the present looks grim for them, Yahweh will save His people. He will establish His kingdom forever. His word does not return empty, but it shall accomplish that which He purposes. And that kingdom will come about. Now there's a central figure in Isaiah's picture. A character that is of the utmost importance. It's the Messiah, the Anointed One. And he's described as both king and servant. First as king, uh, we just read the passage on the screen. Isaiah 9 says that the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And he will sit on the throne of David. And he'll establish his kingdom forever. Isaiah 11 tells us that the Spirit of God will rest upon this king. He will rule with justice, fairly, according to God's righteousness. Isaiah 12 says that on that day, the people of Israel will shout and sing for joy to God their salvation, for the Holy One will reign in their midst. He is a king. That's an exciting figure especially for Israel and a lot of times in history when they're you know, in captivity or in exile, being enslaved by these foreign empires. Their king 
will rule them justly. He will save them. But Isaiah also describes this one as a servant. And there are four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. The servant is one who will bring justice and hope to the world through tenderness and compassion. Isaiah 42. He will restore the nation of Israel and bring salvation to the whole world, not just Israel. Isaiah 49. He will walk in perfect obedience to the will of God. Isaiah 50. And finally, he will suffer. He will suffer for sinners and through his suffering be exalted. Isaiah 52 through 53. So the central figure in Isaiah's picture, he will reign and he'll suffer. He'll serve and he'll be served. He will crush all his enemies, yet he will be crushed for his enemies. Who is this one? Who is this describing? Well, Matthew tells us emphatically in his gospel, Behold, this is Jesus the Christ. This is the one we've been looking for. He is the servant king. And he came first to serve, and he's going to come again to rule in glory. Matthew, time after time in his gospel, he points back to Old Testament prophecy to prove this is true. It's like Matthew, the gospel writer, has you know, the prophet Isaiah, or the book opened here, and then he has the life of Jesus here, and he connects the dots for us. He shows us and keeps pointing back that this is the one you've been looking for, for the people of Israel. And we see him do this again in our passage. He quotes, it's the longest quote of uh, an Old Testament prophecy in Matthew's Gospel. And it's a quote and an interpretation, really, of Isaiah 42, the first servant song. And it really is a perfect insert. Matthew places this perfectly. Right after Jesus said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Right after the Pharisees deny him and oppose him, stand against him with their rigid and harsh rule system. And amidst Jesus healing people and telling them not to tell anybody, Matthew pauses the story and he gives us a flashback. Oh, don't you see? This is the one Isaiah was talking about. The servant king. And Matthew and even Isaiah, God the Father, wants us simply to behold Him. To behold Him. That's the only command in this text. And it comes actually from the lips of the Heavenly Father in verse 18. Behold my servant. Put simply, the Heavenly Father, Isaiah, Matthew, they want you to look at Jesus and worship Him. To See Him the way the Heavenly Father sees Him. To see Him the way that Isaiah wrote about Him. To see Him as Matthew spent time with Him, watched Him, and worshipped Him. So behold Jesus Christ this morning. He is the wonderful, mighty, gentle, and lowly servant King. So we need to worship Him. Let's set up the context for this passage 
In verse 15, Jesus, it says, is aware of this. And what is he aware of? Well, with context, it tells us he's aware that the Pharisees are conspiring to kill him. And so he withdrew or he retreats. And you've got to understand that he doesn't retreat out of fear for his life. He's not scared. He would eventually give up his life freely and without a fight. But he withdrew because the appointed time to die had not yet come. John 7.30 and John 8.20 tells us this. He has more ministry to do. Not yet time for him to die. And so he withdraws. And it says in verse 15 that many followed him and he healed them all. So Jesus' ministry of compassion and miracles, business continues as usual. He's doing what he's always done. He, he walks among sinners. He serves people. He saves them from sickness, proving his authority to save them from all aspects of the sin curse, even death. And in verse 16, it says, He ordered them not to make him known. So he charges them after the miraculous healing, don't go out and tell people about this. Why? Or why wouldn't you tell people? If he is the king, why not now start the revolution? Why not go out as a rabble-rouser and, and stir up the crowds like a, a political warrior? Doesn't Christ want an army? No. That's not his style. That's not his style, at least in the first coming. If we look at the mountain range of Isaiah's prophecy, this servant king, from afar it looks like same person, same time. But as we get closer, we see that there are two peaks in this mountain range. There is his first coming and his second coming. In his first coming, he came to serve, not to be served. He came to suffer, not to reign. But he did that to atone for sinners. In the second coming which we believe to be forward, he will come back and rule and reign, just as Isaiah promised. This is the same king, same person, but two different comings. He will come again to dethrone earthly kings and establish his kingdom. And so the Jews were expecting the warrior politician part, but not the meek servant part. And Matthew shows us by quoting this song in Isaiah that this is Jesus' meek servant coming. And he quotes it specifically. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. So Jesus' unassuming style fits the description of the servant king in Isaiah 42. And in this interpretation of the song, in this quote, we're told to behold three major truths about Jesus. Behold three major truths about Jesus. And then this is where your outline starts. Number one, he is... The Father's pride and joy. He is the Father's pride and joy. Look at verse 18. Behold my servant. Let's pause there. This is a quote from Isaiah. Isaiah 42 specifically. But the one speaking is not Isaiah. The one speaking is the first person of the Trinity. The Heavenly Father. And he is, well, Jesus is, the heavenly Father's servant. 
Now, Jesus serves us in so many ways, doesn't he? He's a righteous example. He is the atoning sacrifice. He's a sufficient high priest. He is a loving master. But we need to recognize, firstly, that his service is unto his heavenly Father. John 6.38, Jesus says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He submits to his Father's will perfectly. So behold my servant, the Father says, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. Three, three truths here that you need to see. First, the Father chooses him. The Father chose him, rather. God the Father didn't choose another man to accomplish his will. He didn't choose another angel or an angel. He didn't choose another way. He chose this one, his son, this way, the second person of the Trinity, to fulfill his plan. The second person of the Trinity would be the one to save and to rule the world. Jesus is the big plan of Scripture. He's the plan that was made before the beginning, the one that was promised in Genesis 3.15 and so many other promises throughout the Old Testament and now is coming into fulfillment. This is the chosen one, Jesus Christ. Make no mistake. He's not the one we chose. He's the one the Heavenly Father chose. Number two, the second truth we, truth we get here is that the Father loves him. The Father loves him. He is his beloved. See, Jesus is not simply an instrument to accomplish God's plan. Jesus is his beloved son. John the Baptist declares in John 3.35, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. How did John the Baptist know that? Well, because when John the Baptist baptized the Son, the heavens opened and the Father spoke and he said, This is my what? Beloved Son. Jesus knew the Father loved him. And John 5.20 says the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. John 10.17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. But the love didn't start at his incarnation. Jesus says in John 17, You loved me before the foundation of the world. This is an amazing, perfect, eternal love between the Heavenly Father and His beloved Son. Paul tells us in Ephesians 3 that we cannot even begin to fathom what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of the love of God. And so we get pictures like this into God the, God the Father's son, love for His Son, and it blows us away. It's an amazing love that's not of this world. It's only from above. You know, we get hints and shadows, glimpses and tastes of love in human relationships. You know, a human father and his son, a, a mother and their child, a, a husband and a wife, but it doesn't come close to the perfect love of God. Everlasting and fascinating is this love. But God the Father doesn't just love him. He likes him. Sometimes we differentiate the two. But he truly enjoys his son. The third point you need to see here is that the Father delights in him. 
Look at what he says. My beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. The Hebrew origin of this phrasing means to look favorably upon, uh, favorably upon someone or to look with pleasure. It is, our, it is akin to our phrase, he is the apple of my eye. I delight in him. You probably know that there are only two times in the Gospels that the Father speaks audibly. Two times. At Jesus' baptism and at his transfiguration. And in both times, he says the same thing. Matthew 3.17, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Matthew 17.5, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. And so we hear from the Heavenly Father two times in the life of Jesus. And in the heavens open, the Father speaks not to tell us about His big plan, not to talk to us uh, about what we need to do, not to talk about sin and judge the world, not even to talk about Himself. Heaven opens, the Father speaks to tell us how much He loves His Son. Wow. The Father decides to talk, and that's what's so important for Him to say. The Son is the song of His heart. The apple of His eye. He is his pride and joy, his glory and his crown. Because he always does the things that are pleasing to him, John 8, 29 says. Every move the son makes, every word he speaks, every thought swells the heart of his father in adoration. There's, a not, there's not a father on earth who loves their boy more than the heavenly father loves his beloved And he wants you to behold him. He wants you to see him for who he really is. His chosen one. He wants you to bow your knee to him and confess that he is Lord. He's thrilled to give his son the throne. He is happy to hear all of creation sing. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. In this moment, there's not a prouder father in all of the universe. Oh, do you love His Son? Do you love Him? Is Jesus Christ your soul's delight? Is He the song of your heart? The joy of your salvation? Do you love Jesus? Do you know Him? Do you love Him? I hope you do. I hope... You're able to see here in your heart, as you see the the heart of the Father swell for His Son, your heart swells with an adoration of Jesus as well. So Jesus first is the Father's pride and joy. Two, Jesus brings justice and hope. Jesus brings justice and hope. Look at the rest of verse 18. He says, I will put my spirit upon Him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And then I want you to skip down to the end of verse 20. Until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Two big words here, justice and hope. And there's an important progression here. First, 
The chosen servant is anointed by the Holy Spirit. Now we talked about, we saw that actually happen at Jesus' baptism. What happened? The Spirit descended like a dove upon him. That was validation. A public sign of his anointing by the Father. That is the official start of his ministry. So he's anointed and then he proclaims. That word proclaim is preaches justice to the Gentiles. Now you might think, wait a minute. I thought his message was repent. for The kingdom of heaven is near. That's at least how Matthew records it. So what is the gospel of the kingdom or the good news of the kingdom? How does that relate to justice for Gentiles, Gentiles, non-Jews. Explain that to me. Well, actually, the prophet Isaiah explains that to us. He makes the connection. See, the kingdom is where the king will rule with righteousness, and he'll decide with equity. We understand that king to be Jesus, and we understand, at least from our perspective, that the kingdom is future. You know, sin has corrupted the entire earth. We know that every system, even the justice system, is corrupt. It is faulty. It fails us in multiple ways. That's because every person is a sinner and and people make up the system. And man, apart from Christ, man doesn't have the ability to execute justice, to rule with righteousness, or to decide with perfect equity. We are not like God, we're sinners. And the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ, this great king, coming again in the future, is he's going to right all of our wrongs in his kingdom. He's going to do what Adam and the rest of mankind couldn't do. Reign from the earth over the earth perfectly. That's what Jesus will do according to the fear of God. And the people of Israel arrogantly thought that this kind of justice was only for them. Only for their people group. But Isaiah told us the whole time that the Gentiles were always included in this kingdom plan. In fact, they've been included since the very beginning, the Abrahamic covenant, that the blessing will go out to the nations. But Isaiah writes specifically that Christ will be the light to the nations. His salvation will reach the ends of the earth, not just Israel. Kings and nations will worship the Holy One of Israel. That's in Isaiah 49. Isaiah 56, 7, the Lord who gathers Israel will gather more and foreigners will worship him at his holy mountain. That's the Gentiles. Isaiah 56, Isaiah 60, the nations, kingdoms will gather and worship in the city of the Lord in this kingdom. And so we see a kingdom future, not just for Israel, but for the entire earth, for the nations, Gentiles included. And so the good news is being preached. It's being proclaimed to Israel and to the end of the world. Jesus says in Matthew 24, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So we have the anointing, proclamation, and then the third phase until he brings justice to victory. That's what I understand Matthew to be saying here. So there's proclamation, then there's consummation. So we're still in this period of proclamation. We preach as Christ preached, right? The gospel of the kingdom. 
And we're awaiting the consummation of the kingdom when Jesus brings justice to victory, when he comes back. A helpful way to see it, as I've been told by a like-minded pastor, is that the kingdom is a future and physical reality that is entered through a present and spiritual door. And that door is Jesus Christ. We believe in Him. We repent of our sins and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. He's the only way for man to be made right with God. He's the only door through which you can enter the kingdom. And so Jesus brings justice. Jesus brings hope to all who trust in Him. And we look forward to His coming and His righteous kingdom. You know, Paul the Apostle, he looked forward to this kingdom. In 2 Timothy 4.8, he says, Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, the just judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. Apostle Paul looked forward to this kingdom, where he received the reward from the righteous, the just king. And so you say, Morgan, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Maybe so. Maybe so. It is getting worse. But listen, if that ruins your spirits, if that deflates your hope, if that discourages you from running the race of Christianity at all or fighting the good fight, then you might have your eyes set on the wrong kingdom. You might have all your eggs in the wrong basket. Look forward to Christ's return in His kingdom where He'll bring justice to victory. He'll right all those wrongs. He'll rule and reign perfectly. Our righteous King, the giver of justice and hope. Our hope is not in this world, amen? We look forward to the next where Christ is. So Jesus is the Father's pride and joy. Jesus brings justice and hope perfectly. And thirdly, Jesus' approach is gentle and lowly. Now we'll look at the, the meat here of verses 19 and 20. Jesus' approach is gentle and lowly. This is the servant's leadership style. How is he going to accomplish salvation? How how will this warrior king lead his people in his first coming? Well, he will be gentle and lowly. Look at verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. So Isaiah says he's not like the typical politician who rallies support from the crowd, who manipulates emotions to get more people to build an army. That's not Christ's style. He's no politician. He's no rabble-rouser. He's not an agitator. This speaks to his lowliness and his meekness. Spurgeon writes this, The wrath of man and hot controversy, the frenzy of wild rhetoric, the torrent of popular declamation, All these Jesus left to the pretenders. He disdained such weapons in establishing his kingdom. No, the approach of Christ follows his heart, which we were told in chapter 11, uh, verse 29, 
is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. And so his approach, his style is meek and mild. He would rather suffer and serve than strut and swagger. He wants authentic faith, not an aggravated following. Jesus is after hearts, not reputation, not popularity. And so he comes and expresses his lowliness to people. Look at verse 20. These are beautiful illustrations. It says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. This speaks to Jesus' gentleness and mercifulness. Now, do you know what a reed is? Small little shoot, a plant. It's, it's not in and of itself a strong structure already, okay? It's not like a tree or an oak. But a bruised reed, well, that, that's a useless instrument. You come across a bruised reed, you break it off and you throw it away. Not Christ. He picks it up and he mends it. Think about a smoldering wick or another translation is a smoking flax. Hardly any embers left. And it's smoking. That's not only a weak flame, but it's off-putting. Smoke aggravates the eyes. It chokes the lungs. If that's the case, you need to put it out quickly and restart with another wick. Not Jesus. See, Jesus bears with the smoke and he fans those fembers, or those embers into flying. Who are these bruised reeds? These smoking wicks? Could it also be the one who is weary and heavy laden? Could it also be the one who is weak in faith? Hope and love? Could it be the one who knows that sin has made them useless and off-putting? Could it be the one who understands there's no strength, there's nothing good, there's no hope in and of themselves? They are at the mercy of the one who passes them by. Do you feel this way sometimes, Christian? having weak faith, having a flame that feels more like just fainted embers, a bruised reed, beaten up, not just by this world, not just by the people at work, by family members, but beaten up by your own sinfulness, burdened with guilt sometimes, that you failed God again, burdened with guilt, burnt out by your own effort, belittled by the rest of the world. Do you recognize yourself in the reed or in the wick? Well, then listen, friend. Behold Jesus Christ. Look to Him. Come to Him. He invites people like you, people like me, into His kingdom. He says, come to me. Who? All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Oh, if you feel this way today, Behold Jesus Christ. See Him as wonderful, as true, as Lord, as Savior, as gentle and lowly. A physician for the sick, a friend for the outcast, a Savior for sinners. Run to Him today. A sympathetic high priest. 
who understands and sympathizes with our weaknesses, who is patient with our shortcomings, who is a propitiation for our sin. He suffered the wrath of God, so you wouldn't have to. He gives rest to the weary. He gives hope to the hopeless, faith to the faithless, love to the unlovely. He'll mend your broken spirit. He'll fan into flame the embers of your heart with a new source of fuel. Not the world's love, not faint objects of faith and hope, but His love, His faith, His hope. Look to Christ. Behold the servant King. I'm so glad that, you know, for this bruised reed, for this smoldering wick, that Christ was the one who passed me by. That it wasn't another person. That it wasn't anybody from this world. Because they couldn't give me what Christ gives me. Oh man. To be passed by by the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't just pass you by. He picks you up and He mends you. He fans into flame your heart. He draws your heart to Himself. And a true affection, a true love, a true joy, a true satisfaction that this world can't give you. Hey, bruised reed. Smoldering, smoldering wick, turn to Christ today. Behold Him. If you're not a Christian or you don't know Christ, you didn't have a relationship with Him, turn to Him today. Behold Christ. Believe in Him for salvation. He's the only way into God's eternal kingdom. You have to trust in Him. You have to know Him. Believe. Grasp by faith the promises of Scripture. There's no other way for you to be saved than Jesus Christ. Come to Him. This invitation is for you. Christian, sometimes you're too hard on yourself. You beat yourself up over and over and over and over again. And then sometimes even like the Pharisees develop a huge list of legalistic demands to try to do and do and do and do to be right with God. Remember Christ. Remember what He did. Remember who He is. Trust in Him. Look to the servant king. And out of a refreshed love and hope, and faith in Him. Walk closely with Him. With a new heart. Refreshed by His presence. Refreshed by Him. And obey. Not because you have to, but because you want to. And you love Him. Can't you see this servant king? Don't you know Him? Won't you trust Him today? And tomorrow? And Tuesday? and the rest of this week, and the rest of your life. He is the gentle and lowly Jesus, our servant King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need to desperately, we so desperately need to see Jesus how you see Him, as the Messiah the mediator between God and men, the the Savior, the only Savior, has given the people of this world hope that can give the people of this world a sense of true love that can satisfy our hungry hearts, that can quench our spiritual thirst. Jesus Christ, Him alone, help us to see Him, to love Him, to behold Him, to worship Him. Today, tomorrow, and every day, day on this earth that we have so that one day our faith will be turned to sight and we'll behold a personal Savior that we know we love 
and have relationship with. I pray that for everybody in this room, potentially some here today who don't have that relationship with Christ, who don't know your son. Pray that you would open their eyes to believe in him today, trust him, to respond to his invitation and repentance and faith, and to take up his yoke, because his burden is light. God, I pray that you would fan into flame those embers in our hearts. You'd refresh our faith today, our trust in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.